Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to continue our study this morning through the book of Ephesians. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll start our sermon this morning. Father, give us grace to know your mind from this passage. I pray that you would help us to understand why you have given us apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain a mature manhood, until we arrive at the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And Lord, this is a lofty goal, but I pray that you would help us to strive forward to it, nonetheless knowing that you have already perfected us in a very real sense. And so we await the day of our full perfection, even though you've already declared us to be so. Give us grace to understand what you have for us today and apply it. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. One of the wonderful parts about Scripture is that we get to trace people that we love from their early years all the way to the end. I was thinking of Joseph. You guys know him. You meet him in the book of Genesis. And when we do, he's a young man full of zeal. He's precocious. He absolutely is skilled in every way. And he tells on his brothers. He sees them doing something wrong and tells his dad. And no doubt he was full of integrity. And I do not fault him. It was probably something that needed to be said. Next thing we know, we see him telling his family that God has given him a vision and they'll bow down to him. And while I don't fault him, there's a youthful zeal about Joseph, isn't there? He's young, he's excited, he loves the Lord. And it's just sort of spilling out like a river out of its banks. We meet him again in Egypt and this time he's been hurt. He's been tempted by the wife of Potiphar. And again, he says all the right things with great zeal. How can I commit this sin against God? How can I commit this sin against my master who's given me everything but you? And while he's proclaiming good and right things, we have to confess that there is a youthfulness about his talk. And then we meet him again several years later, and he's standing before Pharaoh. And there's something different about him now. He interprets Pharaoh's dream, and then he says, let Pharaoh appoint a man to manage the kingdom. You get the sense that several years earlier, Joseph would have been the young man in elementary school sitting on the front row going, ooh, 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 pick me, pick me. And now years, time have taught him let Pharaoh appoint a man. We meet him again a few years later, and those brothers that sold him into slavery are standing in front of him. And Joseph refuses to take revenge, yet he's not going to entrust himself to people that he does not deem to be trustworthy. And he comes up with this remarkable test for his brothers. And we marvel at the wisdom of it and the restraint. He is a wise, restrained man. And then we meet him again in his old age. And his brothers have come to him 
with a foolish word? Have you been cynical all these years? Have you just been waiting for revenge? And Joseph is cut to the heart. Have you not known me all these years? Have I not taken care of you? But he doesn't say any of that. He says, I stand in the place of God. What I would encourage you to do, Joseph says, is look to God. Look at all the good that God has brought from what has happened to me. Before, when we meet Joseph in his early years, he's saying, look what, look what message God has given to me. And now as an old man, he's saying, look to God. Just, just look at God. He is a mature, wise man. The word of God has changed him. The word of God has matured him. And when we meet him in these final years, he he is quite literally one of the finest men ever to have walked on this earth. Because God was at work all along shaping him. This is the work of the local church. It is a building project. But more than a building project, it's a shaping project. It's a maturing project. And every one of us in here have both a mission and, let me put it this way, every one of us is doing a mission and receiving the mission. All of us in here have a job to help mature other believers with the exercise of our gifts. And all of us in here have the job of getting matured as the body exercises their gifts for us. The end is not more tasks. The end is not more ministries on the ministry calendar. The end is not more activity or ceremony or whatever else. The end is a person complete and mature and wise. A stalwart. They've taken their hits. They've gone through life. Trials, yes, have changed them. But the word of God and the gifts of others have shaped them into a pillar of maturity. And that's where God wants to take every one of us. That's the vision that God is setting in front of us. And Paul tells us, of that vision here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. A little context. We've been working through the beginning parts of the book of Ephesians. It says that Christ gives every believer a gift. We've talked about this extensively over the last couple of weeks. The gift that Jesus has given you is not for your personal use in the sense of selfish use. It's not for you to enjoy alone. 
It's a gift for you to hone and to practice and to cultivate for the effect and benefit of others. We exercise our gifts, which often means work and trial, but for others it is a labor of love and they benefit from outpouring of our gifts on them. And Jesus has given to every one of us a gift so that others can benefit from it. These gifts aren't to be hoarded, but used to build the body of Christ. Now, Paul is going to tell us what the building is supposed to look like in the end. We all have a gift. We all have a job to build others, the edification of the body. And now he's going to tell us what the end is supposed to look like. You can imagine if I said, all right, everybody, come over to my house. We're going to do a building project on Saturday. So you show up with all your tools and so forth. And I say, okay, let's build. Next question would be, what are we building? I'm ready. What are we building? Paul's answering that question now. What are we building? Here's what we're building. Verse 13. Let's read it together again, even though it was read uh, this morning already. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We've got, a, we've got four points, and the first one is this, the destination. And Paul says right here that the destination is until we all attain. Now, I want you to look at your, your translations. Look down there right now, because there's actually something that is very important. You need to circle a number, okay? As you look at your translations, it says, until we all attain, in my Bible, I have to make a confession, the verse gets split on the page, and I keep going back and forth. I'm like, okay, where, where is it? <laughs> so forgive me if I'm a little off, because I'm going back and forth between the pages. Okay, so it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, so to the unity, to mature manhood, and to the fullness of Christ. Everybody see those twos? Two, two, and two. There is a grammatical reason for that. And the Apostle Paul may as well have put one, two, and three in the text because he uses an identical grammatical structure to show you that these are the three points. Okay? We are, verse 12, building one another up. We're building up the body of Christ until we attain to these three things. The unity of the faith and knowledge of Christ, to a mature manhood, and to the fullness of the stature of Christ. Okay? We edify until we get to these three places. Okay? Now, important to note, these three places don't build on each other. They are sort of like three different destinations along the path. Imagine if I had to go to town and run some errands. It wouldn't matter which order I ran those errands in as long as I got those errands in. And how many of you have gotten about halfway up the divide and realized that you forgot one of your errands? <laughs> you have to go back down and get it. I do that with some regularity. Well, these are the three destinations that the Apostle Paul is trying to get us to. We are building one another up until we arrive at these three destinations. The unity of knowledge, the unity and the knowledge of uh, the Son of God, unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and to the measure 
of Christ. That brings us to our second point, unity and knowledge. This is our first destination. The Apostle Paul is saying he wants us to arrive somewhere. He wants us to go somewhere. And he wants us to arrive, first and foremost, at the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. These two things go together. When Paul says the unity of the faith, the word unity that he uses here is a rare word. He uses it only here and in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. This oneness, this unity. And what he's also saying is the faith. He's talking about the faith in a way that we don't normally use that word. When we say faith, we think believe, don't we? I believe. But the way Paul is using it here, what he means is the faith as in the content of the faith. And I have a couple of passages up here for you to look at. He's talking about a specific body of doctrine. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 or Acts chapter 14 22 or Acts chapter 16 verse 5. It says that there the church was strengthened in the faith. Or that Paul would go around and encourage the churches in the faith. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that there is a, an irreducible minimum of Christian doctrine. And the Apostle Paul wants everybody to have that specific teaching, which is the faith. What is the faith? It's this. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God in the flesh. And according to the Old Testament, he did exactly what was required of the Messiah of the Old Testament. He died. He was buried. He rose again. And everybody who puts their faith and trust in that person to save them from their sins will be saved from the wrath of God. This is what we call apostolic preaching. This is what the apostles were going around preaching. There's a king, his name is Jesus. He's God in the flesh and he died for you. And then he rose again. And what's more, the Old Testament predicted he would do it and he did it just like the Old Testament said he would. Put your faith and trust and believe only in him. And this Jesus said some radical things. He said, I'm the only way, the only truth. The life, the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's an exclusive claim in the faith. I was hearing from a missionary in India the other day. They said, you know, in India, it's really easy to get converts, supposed converts, because they have a pantheon of gods that are acceptable to them, lots of different gods. And so they'll accept your message, and they will tell you, sure, I believe Jesus, and they, they'll get even a picture of Jesus, and then they go put him up on a place in their house right next to all the other gods that they have also accepted. The trouble is this. Jesus says that none of them exist but him. There is no Savior but him. 
And what the Apostle Paul is getting at here is there is an irreducible minimum of faith. Not everybody who wants to take the name Christian is entitled to the name because they don't accept the content of that name. That content is very, very important. Now, Paul does not want a bunch of Christians that are full of doctrine and of no practical use. Or full of doctrine in the sense of having a book understanding of Jesus, but don't really know who Jesus is. And that's why he says what he says next. To the unity of the faith, to the oneness, to this, doc, to this correct doctrine, but also to the knowledge of the Son of God. And he uses a special word here for knowledge. It's not knowledge as in knowing some facts, but it's the word that you use when you know a person. I, I, I know a person. Now, our language doesn't, our English language doesn't help us much with that. Because in many other languages, Greek included, you have a word for knowing facts. We say it like this. How many of us know of Joe Biden? How many of us know of Joe Biden? Okay? That would be one word in Greek. Does anybody in here raise of hands? No, Joe Biden. No hands. Oh, you do. Well, congratulations. <laughs> you could say, I could say, many years ago, I knew of Chris Pennington. We had teamed up on a Christian blog way, way back when, and we had sat in a few meetings together. But now, I know him. That's the difference. The Apostle Paul says that he, he wants us to build one another up so that we understand this doctrine of Christ, but that it's not head knowledge that we personally know Christ. Here is, oh, by the way, when Paul talks about the Son of God, he doesn't use that title very often. I have a couple verses. I have Galatians 2.20 up there. You can just go check that out for yourselves. When he says Son of God, he's specifically talking about how the Son of God died and was resurrected. That's almost always the context which Paul uses this. But let me get back to what I was saying before. The Christian journey and what we're supposed to help each other in this Christian journey with is this. Learning how Jesus relates to us in areas of life. Some of you know Jesus, but you don't know Jesus to be a provider. Some of us do know Jesus as a provider. And so... 
when the day comes you need Jesus to provide for you. A person in our body encourages you. He will. He's met my need. He will meet your need. And then we rejoice together as Jesus comes through and provides. Some of us know Jesus as a king. But not all of us know Jesus as a king who forgives really bad sins. Up to this point in your life, you've committed ordinary sins. But then a big one gets you. And it's a big one, no doubt about it. And you don't know Jesus to be a person who forgives that type of sin. Well, I'm here to tell you, there's some people among us who know Jesus to be a forgiver of those types of sins. And so, we encourage them. Jesus will do that. Jesus forgives that. And before long, you now know Jesus to be a forgiver of those sins. This is what Paul is talking about. You have to accept the doctrine of Christ, and then when your life rubs up against one of those doctrines, and it was mere head knowledge, now it becomes life knowledge. You know Jesus to actually be that way. And we're constantly pushing each other to allow Jesus to teach us who he is in those many ways. There's our second destination. We are to arrive at the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And there's a second destination, to mature manhood. Paul says we're to build each other up. My job is to build you up. Your job is to build me up until we all, all of us, inclusive, arrive at maturity. What is this maturity? This word mature is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to mean complete or whole. So, for example, when Israelites brought sacrifices to the tabernacle, they weren't allowed to bring a lamb with a broken leg or with hair molting off, or what do you call it, the, 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 its coat molting off of it. You wouldn't eat that. You wouldn't take that to your governor. Don't take it to God. Now, does that mean it has to be a perfect lamb? No, it, it needs to be everything that a lamb is supposed to be. No defects. This is the idea. We're to grow up, we're to mature in the sense of being whole, in the sense of being without blemish. We might have an obvious blemish in our character. And yet maturity means that begins getting healed, and believe it or not, you can actually make that thing that was a character flaw, a strength. The Apostle Paul is going to talk about this later. Let him who stole steal no more, but let him work with his hands. Give a thief 20 years working hard and suddenly... This is the crowning jewel of his character, his hard work and his generosity. He let the grace of God get in and work on him and change him and mature him. We take where we're weak and that begins to develop strengths. This word can mean, I'm calling it, perfectly perfect. This is a work that Jesus has already done for us. Hebrews 10.14, by one sacrifice for all time, 
Jesus perfected us and then sat down at the right hand of God. So we are positionally perfect. We're perfectly perfect. Yet, God is saying, what I want you to do is to become what you already are. If I could illustrate it like this. I don't think college football teams do it a whole lot these days. But back in the day, before high schools had really strong weight training and diet programs, good athletes who graduated from high school weren't ready to step into the physical rigors of college football, for example, or college basketball. And so they developed something called the redshirt program. An athlete could take an entire year and not play in any games, just practice, get in the weight room, eat right, all of those things, and he wouldn't lose a year of his eligibility. Players have four years to play. That wouldn't count against one of his four. You had five to play four was the idea. And athletes would use that time to get stronger and get better and bring themselves up to speed. So here's the question. When a young man, say, entered the football program at the University of Utah, was he a part of the program? Was he on the team? Did he wear all the gear? Did he get on the plane and fly to the away games? Did he get on the bus and travel? Well, of course he does. He goes to all the meetings. He does everything the rest of the team does. He's on the team. But he's in the process of becoming what he already is. And the following season, when he gets in the game, well then, he's matured. And this is the idea God has already declared us to be in the family. We are perfectly perfect by the sacrifice, the one-time sacrifice of Christ. And yet, God wants to bring us along so that we bear the family name in ever greater ways into maturity until the end of our days when that is fully and finally realized. It's yours. Become what you are. That's the idea. What are means of maturing? Say, okay, that's fine, Pastor Greg. A football player, if he wants to mature, he hits the weight room, he practices, he eats right, he does all those things. What does a Christian do? Well, there's four means. In Colossians 1.28, sitting under gospel proclamation, doing exactly what you're doing today, coming and listening to preaching. That is how you are matured. Colossians 4.12, the prayers of others for you. Now, it's important. Prayers for your own maturity have an effect. But the thing that really matures us is when God's people pray for us. And so there's a sense in which if we're unhappy with the maturity of those around us, Perhaps we ought to look in the mirror and ask if we've been praying for their maturity as we ought. 
God is the one who matures. And we talk to God and we ask him for maturing in the life of other people, and that has an effect. That is something that God delights to answer. Hebrews 5.14, meaty teaching. Strong food is for the mature. Get past milk, the writer of Hebrews says. And move on to meat. That will mature you. And then James chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, the one we don't want until it's after. Trials. Trials mature us. Well, I found trials to be times of intense maturing. And I find myself asking God, God, I I want you to mature me, but if you could do it without that trial, I would appreciate it. I don't know that God has ever answered that prayer. (laughs) Trials will come. And they're meant for your good, and they're meant to draw you into that experiential knowledge of Christ. And this is why Paul keeps putting this in the plural, because he wants nobody in here to go through a trial alone. I heard this week a testimony of a Christian who was going through an intense bout of depression. They felt so isolated. They went through it for years and never said a word to anybody. And then finally, when this Dear person, just got so bad, they couldn't even function. They reached out to a friend, and their friend said, do you realize how common this is? And just the fact that it was common took a weight off of this dear friend of mine. And suddenly, they were able to have other people pouring into them, and they got to know a Jesus who walks through that valley with them. And now they're on the other side of it telling people, if you find yourself isolated and alone, you're not alone. There's people who want to help you. There's a God who will help you. And this person now has an incredible ministry to hurting individuals because they have walked through those very same valleys. This is how God matures us. To the measure of Christ. This is our third destination. To an irreducible minimum of faith, to an experiential knowledge of Christ, to a growing, a maturing, a perfecting where we're weak so that those weaknesses eventually become strengths. And then also to the mature, to the measure of the stature of Christ to the stature of Christ. Paul's ideal is that believers would build the church in proportion with her Lord. Jesus never chastises a believer for thinking big things about his church or having big aspirations or ideals for his church. Because Christ 
fills all in all, as we're told from earlier in the book of Ephesians. Christ sits above all things. He fills all. He is all in all. And so he wants the church to put that vision out in front of them. To see the local body of believers grow into this fullness. Paul's saying, don't think small in terms of church. Don't think small in terms of arriving at a goal. Think big. Because Christ is big and he's full and he's everywhere. Dream big. Pray big. Grow into the stature of Christ. Grow into the, the fullness of Christ. And one, in chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, we're told that our victory is already complete. Yes, we're building something and we have an adversary who comes and attacks it, but that adversary is a vanquished foe. It's already done. And we're fighting a winning war. And last, Jesus is presently filling all in all, and we, his body, get to join him in that endeavor. Now, this is what we were talking about last week with the kiddos. Kiddos, do you remember? I remembered you would be in here this week. Kiddos, do you remember A is for? Do you remember what A is for? What is A, a for? Arrow, you're right, Noah. In a warrior's hand, God sends his children flying. Does he just put them like right here in front of us? What did you do with an arrow? Shoot it far. He sends his children flying all across the land. Yes, you guys got it. That's what this is talking about. God wants his church to think big and to fill all in all. And our mission for Fellowship Bible Church must be to become a sending church. To become a church that shoots arrows all across this land of ours. And those, those arrows are going to be our kids. It's a huge sacrifice to send our kids hither, tither, and yon. Where did God send his son? He's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. We have to break free from this mindset of being a mission church and get to the mindset of becoming a missionary church. Does that make sense? Instead of Receiving, receiving, receiving. We become the givers, givers, givers. That's where Paul wants us to go, and that's where God wants to take us. Now, I have two applications. Number one, this kind of maturity in Christ cannot be attained in an environment of prevailing entertainment. I tried to get that as reduced down as simply as I could. Do you want a mature church to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? You want that? That can't be had when church is about entertaining you. 
can't be done. It cannot be done. Now, I'm preaching to the choir because you guys aren't at one of those churches that entertain you, right? You guys are, you guys are sold. My fear, however, is when other Christians will tell you, your church can't grow that way. You gotta, it's got to have more pizzazz. It's got to have more something. It's got to be more entertaining, user-friendly, seeker-friendly. You don't have to listen to that. <laughs> We're about maturing people. Now, what if those Christians are your own kids? Church is boring, and I'm going to give up on God unless God stops being boring. Oh, no, child. Oh, no. God wants to mature us. Now, we, we don't try to make our services boring. God is the most exciting topic that is imaginable. I don't want to be a boring preacher. But at the same time, we're not here to entertain you. We're here to mature you. And that is a world of difference. I know you already believe that. Let me give you a little extra oomph on that belief. Fair enough? Number two. Maturity happens by degrees and in small degrees. So let us be patient with one another. I have a question for you moms out there, okay? How many of you moms, raise your hands if you have a, a child under the age of five. Okay, raise your hands, moms, if you have a child under the age of five. Okay. I want you to imagine you walk into the bedroom one morning to wake your child, and your child under the age of five has a right arm the size of Hulk Hogan's laying in bed next to them. Suddenly, there's this giant arm laying in the bed, and it's your child's arm. How many of you would call the doctor immediately? Okay. <laughs> Something is wrong with that child. <laughs> it's quite an arm, but that child shouldn't have that arm. Is that how we grow? We just suddenly get one body part that's stronger and robust and perfect? That's not how we grow. No, here, here's how we grow. You, you look back at the family pictures through the years, and and one year the child came to your waist, and the next year it's here, and the next year it's here. And because I'm a short dad, I probably only got one more left before I'm the same height. They're taller than my kids. They're catching me fast. We grow by degrees, and we grow slowly. One of my favorite people in the world was an assistant pastor on the staff where I was an assistant pastor. And he used to say this. He'd say, friends, don't criticize pigs for flying low. <laughs> when I grow, when you see Greg Baker grow, that's a pig taking flight. Now, it's very low. <laughs> and inartful, and not beautiful. But it's a pig flying, you see. 
So when we grow, let's, let's be patient with one another. We don't know what's going on in this person's life or that. But we see growth. Come alongside them. Encourage them. Get next to them. Listen to them. Be patient. Pray for them. And they'll do the same for you. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and we start shooting these arrows all over the world. Let's pray. Father, give us grace for this great task to mature manhood, grow us, change us, yes, by degrees, but may we be persistent at this task of growth. And I pray that you would bless and glorify yourself among us now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.